0: John Templeton, who's the projectionist there, said, oh, check out this on the wall. And there was a long list of film titles, most of which I recognized, in pencil, and at the top it said 1929. So this is probably the last run of silent films um, in Boulder back in the day. Or you could look at it the other way, that this might have been the first uh, silent film festival, where silent films were revived as an (laughs) out-of-date art form.
1: Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of movie land comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film brought to you by Nitrateville.com the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world silent movies are back I talked to two silent film accompanists running regional series of silent films this summer Jeff Rapsis in New England and Rodney Sauer in Colorado and he was the first world famous comedian and remains a mystery to this day I talked to Lisa Steinhaven, author of a new book on Max Linder. Avoid seven years bad luck. Be sure you never miss an episode of Nitrateville Radio. Subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. And if you're in the mood, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. When will we know our old world is back? For me, it'll be when we can gather together in a theater to be swept away by the magic of live music guiding us through a classic film. And the good news is, it's already happening all around the country, where communities are not only coming together to see silent films, but to experience the ways people saw them a century ago, in the historic places where they saw them. We'll start in New England, where Jeff Rapsis' day job is as director of the Aviation Museum of New Hampshire in Londonderry. But his passion is playing for silent films around the region. I started by asking him if his life as a silent film accompanist was returning to normal.
2: I'm almost back to normal uh, because there are a couple of theaters that we never really stopped. They stopped showing first-run films uh, because there was none to show, but that gave us actually more room to show... A lot of silence so there's a theater in, in Wilton New Hampshire that um, I sort of consider my home base and uh, he was we were running stuff every week and I got to do like Dr. Mabusa Der Spiele you know <laughs> the giant two-part Fritz Lang epic over right. two days and I never would have had a chance to do that if the pandemic hadn't hit so
1: and um, so how did that work to people you just had a a, a distanced crowd or what
2: well New Hampshire um uh When movie theaters were reopened in July of 2020, um, New Hampshire had a 50% capacity limit, which is pretty generous compared to, like, Massachusetts was, like, impossible. And there are theaters in Massachusetts that are still closed now. But uh, the Town Hall Theater was able to open up. uh, You know, it's got, what, 220 seats. So you could put 110 people in there, and people could still socially distance. And and if people weren't feeling comfortable, they just wouldn't come. Um, But it didn't seem to affect our audience very much, Um, and I was able to do some adventurous programming. We did a couple of, like, uh, all-week-long series that uh, allowed me to do films that I never would have gotten a chance to do um, uh, if we had just kept to the regular schedule. So the pandemic was sort of an interesting opportunity to try some new things, even though a lot of other venues shut down and the activity went way down um, uh, for the most part. But I, I still kept in shape. yeah you know? <laughs> it's like you're a fighter training for the next fight. You've always got to just, like stay with it.
1: Let's talk about some other things you do on the you know small town cultural side mm-hmm. of things. You have a series in Brandon, Vermont, which I assume is not that far from New Hampshire. Um, tell me about that.
2: Well, in terms of distance, all the states here, you know in this part sure. of the country are much smaller, <laughs> so. Uh, The distances are not that great, but it is a three-hour drive to get up to Brandon for me um, because uh, it's not all on the interstate highway. Uh, But it's uh, it's something I love doing because Brandon, um, I've been there for 10 years now, Uh, there's an appetite for this sort of experience that uh, when we first sort of went up there and did these shows, it was surprising to me. Uh, It's one of those places where everything works. They have a, a town hall that was never intended to be a movie theater, but it has excellent acoustics for what I do. Um, and what I do fills the room in a way that a lot of places that have like carpeting and other things don't work so well. Um, and, and this dates from back when there was no amplification. So if you wanted to hear anybody, the the hall had to have good acoustics, right? So if a theater troupe was coming through or somebody was on a speaking tour, um, it, it had to have good acoustics, and it does. It's a, it's a building from uh, 1860s, actually. Yes. Um, And the audience, the people in Brandon and all around that area seem to uh, really enjoy a chance to come together and um, do the silent film experience, uh, you know, to recreate uh, the the whole uh, experience, uh, including the the motion picture itself, but also the live music um, and the uh, audience interaction between all of it. Um, So we all collaborate to kind of resurrect the great cinematic experiences of 100 years ago when people were first falling in love With
1: uh, movies, so is it just one of those those small towns? I mean, I see the population's around four thousand. That's kind of an arty little town and has, you know, cool shops and stuff like that. And people, people, you know, support that thing pretty well.
2: Well, um, yeah, there's a little of that. Um, It's not uh, as much of that as you'd think. Brandon is um, not one of these um, touristy towns as much as like Woodstock, Vermont might be, which is a real. Or Manchester, Vermont, which is—you go to Manchester, Vermont, and close your eyes—it sounds like you're in Long Island because so many people come up from the New York area. But Brandon is just a mainstream Vermont. It's—it's um, it's, um, uh, got a nice main street. It's—it's a—it's—it's kind of like the community and *The Music Man*. It's like a real place. <laughs> <laughs> its claim to fame is that it actually was uh, an important uh, location for the Underground Railroad of um, uh, at that time, uh, back in the Civil War. Um, that people who were trying to get up to Canada, Brandon was a major sort of stopping point um, along the way. And Stephen Douglas, who debated Abraham Lincoln, was born in Brandon, Vermont. And they still have, yeah, they have his home, home preserved, and you can go visit that too. Um, but it's not a, a precious touristy kind of town. It's, uh, it's a working town. Um, it's, it's a real town that's been there a long time. And, and as you can tell, the town hall that I play in has been there. Um, that's a fairly new building from
1: 1860. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, what, yeah, tell me about the, the series that you're doing.
2: I do, you know, the way I work with the silent film um, stuff is that uh, I'm a, i uh, am I believe in iteration. Um, I do live accompaniment, and most of it's improvised, um, and most of it's original to me. Um, and so the only way to do that and do it effectively is to do it a lot. And, and so that's why I, I sort of cram the schedule with as many shows as I can because um, in some sense doing this is therapy for me. It's a way to express the surging you know, inner artistic soul that I have. I guess everyone does too. This is just how it comes out of me. Um, but it's also the only way I can feel like I'm, I can remain fluent um, in the art of doing music to um, uh, these films uh, live and without um, preparing every note in advance. You just have to keep doing it kind of like they did back then 100 years ago. There was a fluency that had to have been um, what you would develop if you were doing this as a paid theater musician day after day, week after week. And so I try, that's all part of kind of recreating the craft, I think. Um, so um, the, the series in Brandon is generally once a month uh, and uh, it, even though we've been doing it 10 years, we've still stuck with most of the big war horses that everyone wants to see, um, even to the point of sometimes repeating them, which I don't like to do because there's so much great stuff, but some films are just so popular and people want to see them. We're going to run Keaton's The General uh, every few years, for instance, because people just really want to see it, and people who weren't around a few years ago are now you know ready for it. Um, so it really... Uh, it. It really is a uh, popular um, series in terms of uh, uh, the, the mainstream films. That, that uh, It's kind of like we show the, the Beethoven symphonies of silent film. the ones <laughs> that will always be played, um, you know, that, that, uh, uh, that, are, that are really audience favorites. Um, we do a lot of the Harold Lloyd features as they become available in public domain. We've been able to run a few that we hadn't earlier, and that's been a real treat for everybody. Um, one of the best reactions we got to anything was when we ran the Harold Lloyd uh, feature, Dr. Jack, Mm. um, which is not one of Harold's major masterpieces, I think anyone would agree with that, but it went over in Brandon incredibly because of just one thing. This was um, during the um, debate over the Affordable Care Act some (laughs) years ago, and so I introduced the film saying that this is a silent film about health care as it might have been practiced in Brandon, Vermont. Uh, <laughs> and, and a century ago and uh, there was a sort of like a, a little rustle of recognition on the part of people knowing that oh, this will be interesting and sure enough, the minute Harold starts um, doing his sort of home remedies in this small town that's depicted in the film uh, there was all this laughter of recognition because uh, it wasn't far off from what Brandon feels like to everybody living there today um, so uh, it's heavy on the comedies if I'm lucky, once once a season we kind of run from may to halloween uh once a season i can sneak in a drama um, and it has to be one of the sacco ones that everyone really will respond to so this year it's the greta garbo film wild orchids uh which uh i don't know how familiar people are with that but i've run that a few times and it never fails to get a huge reaction and it's so well constructed it's you know, a late silent where everybody knew exactly what to do to, to create a picture that an audience would respond to. And even though it hasn't gone down in the history books as one of the great classics, it it plays like a house of fire. Um, yeah. So I'm looking forward to doing that this, um, this season as our sort of um, tip of the cap to the silent drama. And then every Halloween... Um, we do. We used to call it Chiller Theater because for a time the, the town hall did not have any heating system, <laughs> and that's why they they bring me in. The reason we've been doing this is to raise money for the town hall's ongoing renovation. This was a it's a major and large building, but it was effectively abandoned after World War II when the town built more modern offices and all that, um, and it was really in bad shape uh, after 40 years until volunteers started trying to. Um, rescue it and reclaim it as a community center. Um, And so that's what I've been doing. I go up there and we don't charge admission for the series, and they get sponsors to cover the expenses of it, Uh, but they ask people for uh, what they call free will donations, and they've raised thousands and thousands of dollars um, to upgrade different uh, things about the hall. Like one year the big news was the new bathrooms in the basement. (laughs) It gave me a real sense of accomplishment that, you know, me collaborating with Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd, could result in brand new bathrooms for the Brandon Town Hall. I really felt satisfied, like I'm making a difference. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's a, a little bit about the, the series. The the the, um, uh, the Halloween um, films, though, we called the Chiller Theater because there was no heating in the building. There is now. That's one of the other accomplishments we've done. So we've extended the season a little bit into the fall. Uh, but when we didn't have heat, people would bring in blankets and sleeping bags, (laughs) pillows, and you really you could see your breath in there if it was cold enough. Um, And we'd run Phantom of the Opera or Nosferatu or or some other one uh, that uh, would be appropriate for Halloween, Uh, and that would end the season. But as I said, now we've extended it a little bit further uh, into November uh, because there is heat in the building. So there's a certain kind of progress uh, over the ten years we've been doing this series.
1: Now I see you also do a series in Ogunquit, Maine, a name I know mainly from Bob and Ray uh, comedy yeah. routines. Um, tell me about, and that's actually at a vintage theater of a sort. Tell me about that.
2: Yeah, um, it's. Uh, I think it's funny. I um, had business up in that southern, you know, Maine coastal area in the newspaper world, uh, and I had gone through Ogunquit many times. I didn't even know that this theater existed. Because it's a big um, frame building that doesn't look like a theater. They do have a marquee, but you would, you have to look for it. Uh, and it just fits in with all the other buildings in this kind of compact downtown area. Um, and when I ever found out, wait a minute, that's a theater and they actually show movies in it, I went in and started talking with, uh, it turned out, the owner who'd been there for 40 years, Peter Clayton. Um, uh, he... Is one of these guys that uh, loves running a small theater. It's a seasonal theater that was built in 1923, and it had been in one family's ownership until Peter bought it in the 1970s. Um, and so it hadn't changed at all. He was still running 35-millimeter film well into the digital-only um, era. He finally had to do a crowd fundraiser to uh, convert over to digital pictures. Um, but the theater itself, I mean, it's not a palace. It's very plain. It's very sort of New England, you know, sim- simplicity. Uh, uh, but it's a movie theater, and it's got wooden floors. They slope down at a crazy angle. Um, the seating, most of the seating still has the original wire loops underneath the, the uh, seat so that you can stow your hat there if you're a gentleman. <laughs> that's, how, that's what a time warp this place is. And so um, this was a silent movie uh, house, Um, when the silent era was going full blast. And so uh, I I thought, well, we have to to do something here. It's got the right genes. And so Peter was nice enough to try this out. And it turned out there is an audience for this. Um, So for, gosh, I think about eight or nine years now, I've been coming to a gunkwit to the Levitt Theater, to do um, maybe six or seven uh, pictures during the height of the summer season, which is very brief. It's from Memorial Day. To Labor Day, and then everything shuts down until the next summer. <laughs> so um, we do a, a Halloween program there, too, just because the theater at that time of year is really spooky, and they do a haunted house, and a Gunkwit kind of does a Halloween effort. So uh, we do another Halloween show there. I think, as any silent film accompanist will tell you, Halloween is the busiest time of the calendar. Everybody wants to do uh, something, and that's no um, exception in the Gunkwit. Uh, but uh, it's um, it's it's, first, it's important to note that it's uh, even though things are um, not far away here, Gunkwit is about as far away from Brandon as you can get in terms of geography. It's a seaside resort, whereas Brandon is this small town up in the mountains of Vermont. So there's no overlap at all. And people come from just all over to spend time at Agunkwit. It's got a very big gay community um, that has always flourished there for years. Uh, and there's a theater scene and there's piano bars, and it's quite a it's a very culturally literate community and so the silent film experience there um uh is i think somewhat different than what we have up in brandon where it's just families with kids enjoying the experience In agunque it's more cultural appreciation people are fascinated to see the way people dressed and the way people acted and the way films looked a hundred years ago on the big screen you know with live music to make the experience complete uh so they're not that far apart Geographically, but uh, they are quite different um, series because of the audience that each uh, area uh, tends to attract.
1: Well, it looks like you're showing a lot of the same films, um, which makes sense for an accompanist.
2: Well, um, yeah, I don't. Um, I I guess there's a couple things about that. I I do try to um, uh, put a few films in the rotation once in a while, and it just makes sense to have them. Um, in front of you and work with them. Um, the accompaniment is never the same. I sometimes might use the same material, but it's all improvised, and it gives me a chance to work with the film over the course of two or three or even four screenings. So Halloween is a good example. Um, if if it's going to be the year for Nosferatu, then I'll try and put that in as many places as I can and really work with it. Um, it's just easier to do what I do that way, but everyone is different. It depends on the audience. It depends on uh, the theater it depends on what I have for dinner. <laughs> it can be very different, uh, but I do take pride in um, not just repeating the same stuff uh, from one place to another. I try and give everybody something um, that um, makes it special and unique to, to their uh, venue. Yeah.
1: Um, so, do you feel like you've you've built an audience in both places by this point?
2: Yes, I think um, definitely in Brandon. Um, the the place is usually no empty chairs, um, and the place can hold about a hundred people and we've had people come in from quite some distance, um, to check it out and enjoy films. We get press all over Vermont and people do drive some distance to have that experience. Uh, and over 10 years, you do get to where people, um, word gets around and you build an audience. Um, in a it's, um, not the same because, uh, it's a very transient, um, community in that it's a lot of visitors. Uh, and many come from Canada. Uh, people, if you look at a map, you can see how the whole Montreal area in Quebec, the closest beach resort on the Atlantic is that coast of Maine. Uh, and so they get a huge French-Canadian influx over the summer. And so um, I, I think the, <laughs> the silent film experience is uh, it, that helps because it's kind of the international language of science right. and film. So, you know, most of the people from Quebec speak English better than we can. Um, so it's more of an international crowd. It's more of a tourist crowd. Um, but uh, it, there's a hunger for it there in a different way than in Brandon.
1: What do you play in in these two venues? Is it the same instrument, or do they have something historical there?
2: No, in, in most of these venues in new england that i sort of bop around in all year round and, and that includes brandon and a um there's there's no theater organ that's sort of left over from the, the glory days and if there's a piano it's just been beat to hell and is out of tune or just being used to you know store things on or whatever it's just not a, a usable instrument i'm happy to, to use an acoustic piano uh, if it's up to a certain level um uh, so instead what i do is i bring a um The technical term, I guess, would be big-ass synthesizer. (laughs) And I've used the same model for years and years. It's a Korg uh, Triton, L-E-88. So it's a full 88-key synthesizer with weighted action. Um, And I first uh, encountered this in 2003, before I was regularly accompanying films. But I would work with pit orchestras and do other musical projects. And I just loved the feel of this synthesizer, and I loved the quality of the sound that it was able to get. And that was some time ago now. Um, and things have improved quite a bit, but nothing has quite matched what I'm used to with this cord, which is now a, like an antique uh, model. They don't make it anymore. Um, and I, d- I dragged my original one around so much it was falling apart, literally coming apart. Um, and I'd have to kind of patch it together and hold it together with duct tape. And finally it was like time to get a new one. And I found someone on the Internet uh, on Craigslist who had the exact same model it never touched it. And I got that about six years ago. Um, and that one has um, had problems lately. So I found a third one. I had to drive out to Albany, New York, but I got a brand new same model. Um, uh, and that's the one that's my road instrument now. Um, and uh, what I love about it is that it is uh, it has um, the ability to um, change settings on the fly where uh, it depends on how hard you press one of the keys, it'll create a different sound. So if you play, softly or with a light touch um, there'll be one texture that comes out but if you bear down a bit harder it'll add in other voices or take them away, almost like what happens on an organ where you press the, the uh, swell pedal or the crescendo pedal um, and that's terrific because if you have to keep changing settings or doing other things it takes your mind out of the, the movie and the music that you're doing um, And I like to have as few distractions as I can technically when it's time to do music for a movie uh, so I'm just uh, kind of a Luddite with that. I, I stick with this older synthesizer. It's big and heavy. It weighs about 70 pounds. Um, and I don't know, it's, it makes me wish I took up a piccolo sometimes because the thing is <laughs> a real chore to lug it around with the sound system and upstairs and over here and set it up. Um, but um, it's it really does give, I think, a good approximation of what a small orchestra would have done with this kind of music back Years ago to make these films come to life. I mean, it's it, it could do great hip hop stuff if I wanted to, <laughs> uh, but I don't do that. I stick with this, the straight traditional orchestral textures, uh, and then what I end up doing is to come up with stuff that sounds like um, a lot of the texture comes from like the late 19th century romantic orchestra of Mahler or Richard Strauss, uh, I layer on a lot of harmonies, and just try to use the the uh, instrument the way that someone like Max Steiner might have um, come up with a score if he was working on it. And I don't try to do authentic 1920s music as much as I try to do movie music that sounds like what people going to a theater today um, would expect to hear when they go to a theater. Um, and I mean, we're 100 years beyond the silent film era. There's been 100 years of experimentation and development of film music. So all of us now have a sort of different expectation than what someone might have back you know, 1921 instead of 2021. So I I borrow or steal from the best. Bernard (laughs) Herrmann, Danny Elfman, John Williams, um, Eric Korngold, all the people that have done film music that's sort of in our head now, I try to use that as a way to get people to let the film in. So the film is, uh, people come there and I think the music that I do is one bridge between today and yesterday. It helps them accept the film and not hold it at an arm's length like it's some museum piece. No, this is like timeless entertainment with a lot to say to us a hundred years later. And I think if I do music that sounds like a, 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 the kind of music that you expect to hear at a movie today, it really bridges that hundred-year-old that gulf that, that we sometimes have to negotiate in getting new audiences to, to take the silent cinema uh, the least bit seriously.
1: That's Jeff Rapsis playing for Kino's release of Zaza with Gloria Swanson a couple of years ago. Links for his appearances in Brandon, Vermont and Ogunquit, Maine will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Speaking of seasonal theaters... Rodney Sauer, leader of the Montalto Motion Picture Orchestra, which plays scores compiled from his vast collection of period music for silent movie theaters, is playing for and programming a series at the Summer Chautauqua in Boulder, Colorado. What's a Chautauqua? He tells
0: us. So Chautauqua was a, a movement that came around in the late 1800s, and it was an intellectual movement. It was... uh. It started in at Chautauqua Lake, New York, which is fair enough, and that that Chautauqua is still there. Um, most of the other Chautauquas were temporary tent cities. Basically, you'd, you'd set up a big tent, you'd have people come visit, you'd have lectures, you'd have uh, people, you know, doing demonstrations. It was kind of a you'd have prayer meetings, you'd have dance. Um, whenever I see a movie, and there's a lot of these, in especially in the, the The 19 teens, where some comedian is dressing up in a white gauzy outfit and making fun of modern dance. That was definitely a Chautauqua thing. You would get together and you'd do these modern dances, and then and then you'd have Mary Pickford making fun of you in the in the movies. Um, But the Chautauqua Boulder was actually founded by a bunch of Texas um, high school teachers. And the thing that you know about Texas is that it gets hot in the summer. And so, and before air conditioning, uh, what they decided they would do is they'd spend their summer up in Boulder, Colorado, where it's a lot cooler. And so they they came up in 1898, they built this impressive auditorium. They built it in a matter of weeks, uh, but it's just this huge barn-like structure with very fancy towers on it. It was built with a little bit of elegance, but it was built with no heat because it was only to be used in the summer. And so during the summers, um, there, the, the Chautauqua is still there. There are a lot of the cabins that these school teachers built in the 20s and 30s as they were coming to this. Um, the, the, some of the cabins are still in private hands. Uh, some of them are owned by this Chautauqua Association, which is basically founded to run the whole area. It's a national um, historic site now because of the old buildings, the dining hall, the the auditorium, and there's a couple of community houses, and it's right next to the Boulder Mountain Parks. So if you're there, you can just hike up into the mountains um, right out your back door. So it's a very pleasant place to live. And again, it's mostly used in the summer, and people still come, uh, sometimes third or fourth generations, uh, families of the the first people there, and, and come to the Chautauqua uh, the Chautauqua Auditorium is known to be one of the first places in Colorado that, where films were shown, and this again was probably part of a touring lecture series where someone probably brought a hand crank projector and a bunch of one reel, um, you know, actualities showing the Cuban War or whatever they happened to have in their on their wagon, and would show it there. Uh, we know that by the 1920s they built a, a fairly permanent projection booth, and so. Uh it's there, it's all still metal lined from the nitrate days. And the 35 millimeter projectors are long gone. But by the time I came out here in uh the late 1980s, uh Hank Troy, who is a longtime silent film pianist, uh had started a series of silent films that should talk with it. It's still going on. So it's it's every summer. Usually they show anywhere from five to fifteen movies. It's been up and down, depending on the on the interest. Um, on wednesday nights the chautauqua is also a major stop for touring bands orchestras so yeah you get um you know richard thompson playing there on tuesday um and then you get a silent film on wednesday it's just uh, a kind of a multi-purpose hall
1: now you ran across an interesting piece of evidence of films being shown back in the day there what was that
0: when I first started going there, it was 16 millimeter projection and one of their Xenon projectors broke irreparably. So they only had one. I had thought the second one had broken too, but the projectionist said, Oh no, no, we've got that. It still works. And so I brought up, I happened to have a, a tinted print of steamboat bill jr. That came from uh, Paul Girocki, I believe, and he got it from the Killiam collection and it really hasn't even been run before. Um, So I thought, oh, let's do at least one show in 16 millimeters. So I took my print up there just to make sure it all worked before we planned the season. And sure enough, the projector worked fine. But then um, John Templeton, who's the projectionist there, said, oh, check out this on the wall. And there was a long list of film titles, most of which I recognized, in pencil. And at the top it said 1929. And I realized that this was, in fact, the program for the 1929 summer at Chautauqua. And it really didn't occur to me this morning that probably um, everywhere else in Boulder was probably showing talkies by 1929 in the summer. So this is probably the last run of silent films um, in Boulder (laughs) back in the day. Or you could look at it the other way, that this might have been the first uh, silent film festival where silent films were revived as an (laughs) out-of-date art form, although I'm sure they did not look at it that way. Okay, so I assume there was no Chautauqua and no film
1: program last year.
0: Yeah. So not only the auditorium was shut down, but basically every musician in America was shut down. So this was we I am very grateful that we had this uh, pandemic unemployment for gig workers because that saved not just me, but almost everyone I work with in terms of providing them with a baseline where they didn't get thrown out of their houses because there, there literally was no work. And there shouldn't have been any work. I mean, there, there Musicians should have been out of business last year. so it was it was the right thing to do. But the Chautauqua decided they wanted to do a show if they could online. So I got together with Hank Troy. And we showed up in masks without an audience, but we showed up on the stage at the auditorium. This auditorium actually has really nice acoustics. It's a big old wooden building, and the reverb in there is kind of amazing. And I thought, if we're going to try to do an online thing, we should try to capture that sound. So I actually set up a a digital piano in there with the best speaker I could come up with, and then we captured that sound from the auditorium. we did four, just four shows last summer. Uh, we did, uh, and they were all, I think, in the public domain. We did the General, we did uh, Charlie Chaplin's The Kid, we did. Uh, let's see. Then I brought the two string players from Montalto. So because the people who don't breathe, um, <laughs> just for absolute safety, we did a trio rendition of our score for Lady Windermere's Fan which is the the Ernst Lubitsch uh, film, which I love. Um, And we we put all of these up online, and they went over pretty well. Uh, But it's not the same as being in an auditorium, as you know. And the comedies fall a bit flat, as you know, when you don't have an audience there laughing along with. So we're really happy um, that it's coming back in this summer.
1: So I understand that you're programming this summer series as well as playing for
0: it. Yeah, they usually um, they had a bit of turnover at Chautauqua, so they knew that there was a silent film program, but nobody involved with it this year has ever done one. So they were very happy to get my suggestions and they wanted to do five nights. Uh, which is a little bit of a scale down, but still, you know, it's five more than we had last year. And because they let me do it, I thought, okay, we need a mix of of uh, big hits, and we need a mix of obscure things no one's seen before. And so I think I did a pretty good job of putting together both of those Things We're going to start um, on July 7th. We're going to show Safety Last. And the last time we were in the auditorium, I think um, that was not in the public domain, but time has started progressing again. So now that's a public domain film. Um, Then we're following that up on the 14th with a, a program that we're doing with the permission of the San Francisco Silent Film Festival, we're going to show the 1929 version of The Hound of the Baskervilles that was made in Germany and was never actually released in America as far as anyone knows. So um, it's been shown in San Francisco and it's been out on DVD and Blu-ray, so you can see it. But this is going to be one of the first times after San Francisco that it's shown on a big screen, certainly probably the first time in Colorado. Then um, uh, Montalto will come in and we'll play the silent version of All Quiet on the Western Front, which is a film that I really love. Um, and I like the silent version of it; it's kind of fun to to do. It works well with a with a live orchestra. That's another one we were commissioned to do by San Francisco, but we've never had a chance to repeat it. And um, uh, my wife Nancy and my daughter Molly were involved in the sound effects crew for that, which is quite a busy piece of work, because we do a lot of um, effects in that film score. Then on the 28th, I was talking to Ed LaRusso, who I know you've had on this program before, and he had a new um, transfer from the Library of Congress of the Marion Davies film, Xander the Great. And I said, do you mind, would we be able to borrow that from you to show at Chautauqua? Um, and I uh, he said, oh, of course you can, yeah, and he sent me the the original file. So that's going to be fun because, again, I don't think that's been shown in Colorado since its first uh, release. And then Hank Troy will be playing for that one. So he's still active? Yeah. Yeah, then we wrap it up on August 4th with another um, sort of... It, Big tentpole comedy. We're going to show uh, Buster Keaton's Steamboat Bill Jr. But as I mentioned, that's going to be from a 16 millimeter print rather than from one of the recent restorations, just because I've got the print, and it actually looks quite good.
1: Well, nice. Remind people how many players the Mon Alto Orchestra has when they're all breathing.
0: <laughs> right. Yes, and that's actually going to start up again. So we've actually been commissioned to record some things, and I'll talk about that in a bit. But the Mon Alto Orchestra is... We're, we're trying to recreate a typical orchestra that would have played in a smaller theater in the teens or 20s. So um, I lead the the group. I'm on piano, but I do not conduct the group. The group is all, we all play chamber style. We don't use any modern things like click tracks. We just, I, I score the films by compiling the music from old libraries of pre-orchestrated music. And then uh, I play piano. We've got violin, cello, clarinet, And trumpet, and so with just five people, we actually get a pretty big sound with a lot of the the sound of the orchestra uh, mixed in there. And it's been it's been quite a run. We've now been doing this since 1994. We have scored over 140 different films, and we've performed all over the country, and done a lot of recording. As a matter of fact, during the pandemic, even though we couldn't get together, I was able to set up recording studios in everybody's house using little uh, uh, high-quality audio interfaces and using the same microphones that we use in my studio because I had no use for them during the pandemic. And then we would uh, send things back and forth. I would record a piano part, send it to someone. They'd add their part. They'd send it back to me. I'd put those together, send them to the next. So there was quite a lot of, uh, of trading back and forth, and it took a long time. But we actually managed to do two complete film scores recorded, we did a, a score for The Three Musketeers for the Film Preservation Society, um, Tracy Gessel's group, and I know you've talked to her before. And they have a, a new transfer, The Three Musketeers, that looks gorgeous. Um, it's been shown at San Francisco with an improvised score, um, but now they'll have our, our recorded score. And then we also made a score for Douglas Fairbanks' Robin Hood. So it was quite a swashbuckling year. Uh, just recently, I've been contacted by the University of Indiana, and they want a score for a rather obscure art. Acord western called Sky High Corral that they happened to have a sixteen millimeter print of, and so I was able to track down the cue sheet. And on June twenty fifth, we're actually getting together in the studio for the first time to start laying down the tracks for that that western. And are
1: you doing other live performances?
0: Yeah, so after the Chautauqua, um, we're going to be doing a little tour of Kansas and Arkansas in September. We're going to be playing at the University of Arkansas, and they're, they also wanted All Quiet on the Western Front. That's one reason why uh, we're doing it this summer at Chautauqua, is you you learn you remind yourself how to play a movie that long. It's really nice to get a couple of showings of it. And then we're going to the uh, Buster Keaton celebration in Iola, Kansas, which is back on after a several-year hiatus. Oh, nice. And they've asked us to play for, obviously, Buster Keaton films. So we're going to do, uh, I believe, Three Ages and Our Hospitality. They're particularly concentrating on Buster Keaton's historical films, you know, such as their historical um, this year.
1: You know, when I lived in Wichita, I actually went to Pickway, which is his actual birthplace, and just a speck on the map. Yes.
0: As I understand, Pickway used to be larger, and then a tornado came through, and that's about all that's left, is a church and two houses. So yes, Iola. Well, now
1: there's a plaque, but, you know, my friends and I went back then, and it was like communing with ghosts. So it's great that there's a celebration now in the big city, Iola.
0: Oh, it's in the middle of nowhere. And and the fact that he was born in Pickway, it, it, it's totally random because, of course, his parents were in vaudeville. And so every week they were in a new place. So he just happened to come out in Pickway. <laughs> and then apparently she sort of stayed there with him for two weeks and then caught up. And I think his mother was like a, a saxophonist and balloonist, sort of her 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 connection in vaudeville. That was her act. So I don't know how much longer, how long you need uh, maternity leave before you can go back to uh, playing saxophones and ballooning. And I don't know if you did them both at the same time. That would be pretty awesome. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out
1: how you get a balloon in a vaudeville theater.
0: I bet putting up a balloon, a tethered one, um, would be a really great way to bring people in. Yeah, They still do that on, on new real estate developments They'll hang a couple balloons in the sky So having, having someone up there playing the saxophone I would think would be a good way to draw crowds Yeah, entertainment was so much more varied then I think, well, and when it came through You went to it, no matter what it was Because there might not be anything else for months
1: Which honestly was how it was in Wichita Which is decent sized But if something good came You saw all your friends there Because there wasn't anything else
0: Oh yeah my my son Rowan was uh, is deeply into uh, metal music and he went to college in Butte Montana and so yeah he he would see everybody at the at, whenever a metal band came through he had a, a radio show in the afternoon so all the all the metal bands would send him tickets and so he could go to the shows for free and then he'd come up talk you you're the guy who has this the the radio station and he's like. Yeah, that's me.
1: <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't know anything about that doing this podcast.
0: Iola actually has a beautiful uh, art center, which is unusual for a town of that size, but it was built back in the 1960s and it's it's kept going. And so there's a very modern uh, concert space. The the auditorium is quite nice. Um doesn't have 35 mm projection because it's a concert hall rather than a movie theater, but but they they bring in um, you know they, they do a good job and they turn it into an academic Uh, festival as well. So the, the evening shows are for entertainment and they're introduced and we show the movies with the music during the day. There are uh, lectures by people who've studied aspects of comedy aspects of Buster Keaton's life and that kind of thing.
1: So a whole year went by when you weren't doing stuff. Was there any chance of the band breaking up?
0: I, I don't think there was any danger. Um, everyone who's in this group enjoys this group. This music is unique. A lot of times when we're playing things, these, you know, these are pieces that are not known, and it's really nice to bring them back to life. And it's just so much fun to play. And, of course, the audience response to our shows is just um, very gratifying. And, and we, all, we all get along with each other, and we're all good friends. Um, you know, we get together, and it, it gets like a college road trip. So there's some silliness that happens. But when the, when it comes to the music, uh, I'm really happy with the people I'm playing with. And, um, you know, I, I once early on in my career, I was in a band and there were some people in it who were not, you know, they were very nice people, but they were not great players. And I sort of made a little promise to myself that in my next group, I try to always hire people who are better musicians than I am. And that way <laughs> I would always have a good time. And so far that that seems to have taken Yeah, here's a bit of the recording that we made at the concert hall, and what you'll hear here is uh, me playing piano, I've got Emily Lewis playing violin, and David Short playing cello, and I'm recording this from a stereo microphone that is set back in the audience so that we capture a bit of the natural resonance of the hall.
1: Links for Rodney's series at the Summer Chautauqua in Boulder will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. When a comedian's life takes a dark turn, it can be hard to see the comedy. That probably sounds like I'm talking about Roscoe Arbuckle, but it applies at least as well to Max Linder, whose life spiraled downward after World War I and ended with the suicides, or very likely murder-suicide, of him and his young wife. A tragic tale, but a century later we only know about it because of the reputation of the artist in his time. And Dr. Lisa Steinhaven says that Max Linder was, simply, the very first movie personality to be known all over the world. Half a dozen years before Charlie Chaplin first stepped on a movie set, Max Linder was already a popular and beloved comedian, and the high-strung, mischievous bon vivant he played was an admitted influence on Chaplin's development. Lisa Steinhaven has published two books on Charlie Chaplin and one on his brother Sid and she chronicles the life of a cinema pioneer in her new book from Bear Manor Media, The Rise and Fall of Max Linder, the first cinema celebrity. I spoke with her from Zanesville, Ohio, where she teaches at Ohio University. Well, let's give people, first off, an idea just of who Max Linder was and what his place
3: in the very early history of silent comedy is. Okay, Max Linder got his start in films in 1905, so he predates... uh, Almost all of the early film comedians, except uh, maybe the French ones, um, being that he started so early. Um, I mean, there weren't even really um, film-justified theaters at that point in time. They were still showing films at fairs and, um, you know, uh, places outside for the most part. So um, we're talking really, really early. So 1905 is a good what, uh, nine years before Chaplin, for instance. Um, so much of the comedy business that we know and love uh, really emanated from people like Max Linder down through the eight. I mean, everybody in America saw him. So um, he's kind of like the grandfather of some of the best comedy that we know.
1: Yeah, I mean, looking at the very early ones, He's recognizable as a comedian, not just as part of a crowd of chaos on the screen right. from a very early point. I mean, he has the advantage he had big eyes and, mm-hmm. you know, a big black mustache and black eyebrows and, you know, all those things that would sort of make him easy to recognize for a baby. Uh, so, <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, you know, so, so at a time when a lot of people are somewhat anonymous on screen,
3: he's clearly someone you can pick out. Exactly. He does have a character that he adopts about 1906, 1907, um, and that is the little little dapper gentleman character. Um, And that's really quite divergent from things like the little tramp or or Buster Keaton's silent sort of uh, deadpan comedian character. Um, Max was all about showing this sort of – Late 19th century, 1890s, sort of. Um, well, Boulevardier, yeah. Boulevardier, Boulevardier. Thank you. Uh, a sort of a rich, uh, ne'er do well gentleman who's got plenty of money, but he doesn't really have anything to do except uh, chase women, for the most part. He's often not successful. Yeah. He gets drunk a lot. He's always in trouble with his father. Um, and he's he's really not really good at getting the woman he wants. So well, that's... yeah, it's interesting. You quote a
1: couple of different people trying to place his his social milieu very mm-hmm. precisely. I mean, he's it's not that he's rich; it's that he's the son of someone who's rich, right? Exactly. And his behavior is that of the not quite grown up son. The boulevardier is you know is is the word that's used along with a couple of others. Um, and it's just interesting to me that there's so much precision in how they perceive him that I think we probably wouldn't even necessarily recognize. No. But, but things about his costume early on put him as a particular type on the French
3: scene. And we didn't really have that sort of a person here. Um, so I think that was part of the trouble with him coming here to make films. He kind of had to make some adjustments. Um, uh, and also he was many said overacting, over grimacing, um, doing things with his face that were just, you know, not subtle. And he had to really kind of uh, tamp that down in order to be successful here.
1: So. Which, which I think he does by the later films, but I mean right. it's it's striking. I mean he's doing what you need to do at that early phase to make an impression and be the one that people look at as as Chaplin will. I mean it it seemed yeah. very much in that that you know Chaplin had that way of getting you to stop looking at anyone else on the screen, mm-hmm. and you see Linder, you know, heading toward that at a time when the idea of how you're even a comedian on screen is not clear yet.
3: Right. Exactly.
1: Um, so, what do you think of his his early character in that, that pre war period? How do you see it develop?
3: Well, um, he took, in 1905 6, he was taking all kinds of roles. A Jewish jeweler, for instance, in one film, he played Pulcinella, which is the uh, antecedent of Punch, the, the, the hook nose character of Punch and Judy. Um, and so, I, I'm not sure, I think it was probably a character that he kind of felt comfortable with because he was kind of that person in yeah. some sense. <laughs> um, I mean, his father was not a city dweller. He was a, a winemaker, but he was wealthy, especially when he after he came to the U.S. and made tons of money helping American winemakers make wine and then came back with all that money. But um, I, I think that especially in films like the college one where he goes to the big city and goes to college. That's, I think that's his first one. Um, and the the father comes to the city and tries to, you know, say, Hey, you need to act in a, in a more mature manner, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I think that's very much part of what kind of happened to him because there were points at which, uh, I think, um, Linder's father asked him to change his name because it was an embarrassment to have a Louvier in, in this sort of business, which was looked down upon, as you know. Yeah. Um, so he, he ended up changing it to Linder. Um, and he eventually did get an allowance from his father early on when he needed it. But it was not given. It was given reluctantly, you know. <laughs> so I, I think some of those early films were based on real life in, in, yeah. in, in part, at least
1: rang true yeah
3: yeah um so
1: yeah i mean he's in that he's going into films in that period when people on the stage didn't necessarily necessarily want it known that they were in films exactly Um, and yet he's also doing from a pretty early point uh film stage hybrids where he'd do a stage act but it would be preceded by
3: a piece of film showing something he couldn't do on stage so Um, I I thought this was really innovative, and he wasn't the one that invented this idea, but he came on it really early, and that's the idea of the film sketch, um, where um, actually there's a film before the actor comes on stage that has been made beforehand of his late arrival So he's trying to get to the stage, but he's late. And there's this film that shows him running through the city and running through the subway, whatever. Um, And then he plops down from the, the heights of the stage or something and arrives all tattered and disheveled and ready to do whatever little sketch he's devised at that point. And then even later in the sketch, there's maybe one or two other pieces of film. And my collaborator, Catherine Corman, noted in her filmography that none of those little pieces of film exist that we know of, which is a shame. Yeah, He first tried this out at a um, Pathé Frere company picnic. So he tried it out on his co-workers first, and it was a big hit. So he decided to uh, take it on the road, and that's where he did his basically uh, European tour tour. tours over the years. I mean, everywhere from uh, Berlin to Russia to Vienna to um, all throughout Italy during World War One. after he was basically um, rejected from actual service. So um, it became a real huge moneymaker for him to do those.
1: Yeah, it sounded like, uh, I mean, a good deal of his career is really being out touring Touring with his films, mm-hmm. which I don't think there's any parallel to that in American comedy, of anyone who, who particularly had to do it. It's a little bit like the uh, the dancing tour that Rudolph Valentino went on when he couldn't, you know, he he was in a contract dispute with his studio. But, right. Uh, you know, and it reminds you that uh, being in movies wasn't the only way to make money back then. But uh, so, how was his film career going at that point?
3: It was really, really at its t- at its top. I mean, it didn't really uh, start to go downward until World War One. So uh, all the way up until 1914, it was just rising.
1: Okay, so Uh-oh. so like 1910 to 1914, he's mm-hmm. on top of the world. And um, there's that poster that's claimed to be the first time somebody's name is on a poster. I think basically, or you know, the first real example of star billing like that. Tell me mm-hmm. about that.
3: That's um, Florence Lawrence uh, has been, uh, you know, possessing that particular title for years. I think her particular first mention was either 1909 or 1910. um, But a lot of scholars have have now found posters of Max that go earlier than that. So uh, one fellow in England, Andrew Shale, found one that was in early 1909 and I believe a Brazilian poster goes even earlier, maybe 1908. So um, it's it's pretty definitive now that Max actually um, claims that title over Florence. So now, I mean, and that was
1: partly in France, I imagine, because he was known on stage, but he wouldn't have been known in Brazil, right? I mean, so he's really a film star in other places and and around the world. I mean that's the other part of it too to me as it seems that you know who's the first person to be recognizable all around the world and we certainly consider you know Chaplin and Fairbanks and so on as very early examples of that but you think mm-hmm.
3: Max is there first. Absolutely. Yeah. And the Brazil the other thing was his last name. Everybody claimed it so the Brazilians thought it was a Brazilian last name, so yeah. they they claimed it. The Germans thought it was a German last name, so they claimed it. And this got him in trouble in World War One. Actually, it's like, okay, is he on the German side or? And he was deadly afraid of Germans, actually, because of the war. So,
1: yeah, it's like you know, you think I'm on another side. You've been watching my movies. So, you know, anybody <laughs> you know, if there's anyone you should know by now, that's right. It ought to be him, but, yeah. um. All right so um through the early teens then he's yeah you know, he's, he's really on the top as a star what are his films like then
3: um actually they're kind of he's he's directing by 1910 so he's directing his own films he started with uh um a couple of the top um uh, Pathé Frère directors and then he moved on to his own directing so he's Really like Chaplin in in many respects. He's writing the films. Um, this is something that Maud Linder wanted to make sure everybody knew uh, that he was writing his films. By then, he was directing. He was starring. The only thing he didn't do was write the music. Obviously, yeah. obviously. Um, so his films were a combination of um, you know one and two reelers all the way up to a four reeler, which was called um, Max uh, Has a Duel or Max is in a Duel. Max a. Undul. Um, That one um, was cut down because of the sensors, because it had something to do with um, people in World War One. I. I can't remember exactly what. So it was only shown in the UK and Belgium for a while. And it was cut down to, I think, about two reels. But it does exist in four reels. The problem is that it's very fragile and has not been restored. Uh-huh. But really, it's one of the first... Um, Long, I mean, everybody's, this is another contest that everybody's trying to win, right? What is the first feature? Is it Tilly's Punctured Romance? Is it Max Has a Duel, you know? Um, <laughs> right. Max Max Has a Duel is actually the first in terms of date, yeah. if we can call it that. So, uh, so he was doing all kinds of things. Um, he has a uh, kind of a patriotic film called The 2nd of August, 1914, about uh, the first half of the film is about that, that sunny, happy time right before the war. The second half is about being called up. You know, there's no war scenes. It's just about leaving for war. Um, he's got uh, films about dancing, being a dancing instructor and um, in Berlin. So he always, when he's on location for all those film sketch tours, he was also taking film. He has one in a, a Spanish bullfight ring in Madrid or in Barcelona, I believe. Um, so he did two films in Moscow, and uh, those have been lost. or They're probably in Moscow someplace. And yeah. <laughs> no one's been able to find them. Um, so he, he's covering all the, all the bases, and it's always the dapper gentleman pretty much at this point. Yeah. Now, he,
1: was he successful in America at that point as
3: well? Yes, he was. Okay. Um, you can you can leaf through the industry um, rags like the Motion Picture News, Moving Picture World, and you can see ads for his films in there. Yes.
1: Yeah, Chaplin wasn't someone who generally gave credit away to others easily, but he definitely seems to have admired Max and considered him a, a model. I mean, I felt as you're talking, you know, you're talking about him. Doing the same things Chaplin did. Well, of course, he's doing them first, and I felt like Chaplin to some degree was measuring him against Max's milestones. You know, I should be mm-hmm. directing my own films and things like oh, that. Oh, maybe. Yeah, maybe yeah. so. Um so Chaplin, but Chaplin expressed his admiration for Linda at that you know,
3: pretty early on. Um, that's up for debate. I mean, <laughs> The chaplain office will say he was under duress. I mean, you know, Linder was coming to the studios and he had to be nice to him. Um, I found a lot of evidence that the two hung out quite a bit while Linder was in town. I mean, so much so that they were—they actually had houses that were within a few hundred feet of each other <laughs> during the um, 1921-22 period. Um, and, and that they, you know, as... Um, one writer said they spent the evenings talking over gags and scenes and things like that. Um, how they did that without a trans, I am suppose the translator went along. I'm not yeah. sure. Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure they spent that much time together, but Chaplin was not married yeah. at that time, so it's quite a possibility. He would have probably preferred that to going out to bars and parties and, <laughs> and that sort of thing, which is not his scene, you know? Right. Um, so. Not not sure, but yeah. Okay, so then um,
1: Chaplin leaves the S and A, and S and A, in a you know Hail Mary move, pays a lot of money to get Linder over to be their you know, be ch- Chaplin number two, for right. them, um, which did not particularly
3: work out. What happened
1: when Linder came to America that time?
3: Um, what happened was that Spore had, had already cut and run. In regards to too much of the SNA property and personnel Um, he had gotten rid of the Niles studios he'd gotten rid of uh, Billy Anderson um, and he was counting on Linder to do his work in Chicago and to make big money just there you know and of course Linder didn't like the weather either right (laughs) you know but he hung in there for two films in Chicago And then he got sick. I mean, the man had tuberculosis anyway. Right. Um, And so, you know, he was wanting to go out to California by the time that the second film had been made. So they had to pony up for a studio that they didn't own. They had to rent one out in California and move everybody out there. (laughs) And then we have, you know, Max in a Taxi, which... um, you know, there's, there's some really good moments in that film, but also Max was incredibly sick and ended up in a sanitarium out in California, um, and having to say, you know, I can't go on. Basically, yeah. So, so what he came out of World War One with was more sickness that he already had.
1: Yeah, he seems to
3: have been quite frail
1: at different times and I wondered I mean I wonder if tuberculosis was part of it. I mean that would have been common in the time. Yeah. Uh, but he also it kinda seemed like various kinds of breakdowns. Um I mean what do we know really about his state? What we there?
3: know is that he had a horrific appendicitis operation um that opened him up in four places he said that his whole belly was opened up on like three sides or something. And that particular wound, uh, came back to haunt him again and again. And he also had, um, um, tetchy lungs, which uh, no one ever said the word tuberculosis, but I'm assuming that that had a lot to do with it. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, he went to two different sanatoriums in the States, one in Arizona and one in California. So, yeah, he was just an unhealthy person. Yeah. Not, not to even mention his mental health problems, which I'm not even. I don't. I try not to even touch those much in the book. Yeah.
1: You know? Well, yeah. Then so uh, after the S and A deal comes to its end, um, does he go straight into World War One, or what happens at that point?
3: He's already by the time he gets to America the first time, he's already dealt with the World War One issue. Um, so he's already been uh, released. Okay. He volunteered. He worked as a, um, a, a driver for various, um, you know, upper division generals and whatnot for a while. Um, he was let go then in, uh, I believe, April of 1917. And so that's when he was able to come to the States for SNA. And so after that, he's not doing the war at all. Okay. So he he goes back to France. He realizes, you know, he's got a big problem because nobody's making films in France. He hits up his old friend, uh, Diamant Berger, who is the um, editor of a nice magazine over there. And the guy ponies up the money to make Le Petit Cafe, which is a big, huge hit on their stage or had been. And he makes that into a film. And then after that, he comes back here. He gets, uh, but he comes back without any contract from anybody. Um, I kind of think that Sidney Chaplin or somebody said, hey, we're making this nice studio. We've got the studio built. Why don't you come back and make films here? But Uh, of course, that was just like a promise in the wind. You know how the the Chaplin brothers are. And um, he came back and there was nothing waiting for him at all. So he had to um, negotiate once he got here. So, he, yeah, so, I
1: mean, he spends a few years making films, including some of the ones that, if anything's remembered, they're, they're what we know now. I mean, like seven right. years, bad luck. Um, were any of them
3: particularly successful? I think they were all moderately successful, but not overwhelmingly successful. Okay. So at, at that point,
1: he's, I mean, he's not. He's not like a washed-up star, but he's he's got plenty of competition, which was not the case in his earlier career. That's for right. sure.
3: Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so how's it go for him then? Um. Badly. So he's you know he's used to this level of popularity and and money making that he can't seem to recoup. He's getting older. He looks older. Um, and he's going back to France again, defeated. Although, you know, well, he goes back and he, he goes to his favorite place, which is Switzerland or the French Riviera. Those are his two getaway places. He goes to Switzerland. He falls down a crevasse in a ma- mountain and he breaks both arms. OK. And uh, <laughs> and so he has to recoup from that for a while. And he, at some point he probably says to himself, you know, um, why don't I just get married? <laughs> <You> yeah.
1: <know? laughs> Yeah, Uh, that seemed an odd Hail Mary play, (laughs) you know, in the middle of it, too. It's, you know, (laughs) and just introduces no end of chaos and sewardess into
3: his life at that point. Yeah, it's the first time anybody covers him with a woman. I mean, I checked everything. There was never any coverage of Linder with a woman, ever. So (laughs) I'm not sure what happened with that one, you know? Yeah. But... But there was coverage of that, especially when he like kidnapped her and took her to Nice, you know, so. (laughs) Right. I mean, it just has to be said, it seems like, you know,
1: particularly after his World War One experiences, which were not particularly distinguished, but certainly harrowing at times. Mm -hmm. And then, um. yeah, there's just a stray mention of him having been shot in the chest. Did that happen? <laughs> no. no, that didn't happen. Okay, no. well, and that's part of what your book is about—is like extracting, you know, reality from press stories back in the day. Right. Um, right. But uh, yeah, so I mean, he's he's just on a downward spiral that ends quite horrifically. So
3: right, he does make a, a, a short film with Abel Gance in 1924. Called um Osakur or Help. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was supposed to be an experiment. We're gonna make this film in ten days. It actually took three weeks, but um it's a kind of a fun little film. I don't know if you've seen it or not, Mike, but it's a long time ago. Long time ago. Yeah, it's uh it's not an Albergons film. I mean, yeah. seriously. <laughs> well, it's um, not five I, hours
1: long, for one thing.
3: Yeah, that's true. Um, but it's fun. I mean it's it's worth a, worth a watch maybe. And then um, comes the the Nightmare in Vienna, is what I call it. But um, King of the Circus is actually a good film. but it, it harkens back to some of the old um, formulas that he had when he was making the old Pathes. The rich son or the rich man's son um, giving an ultima- being given an ultimatum to marry somebody. But he doesn't want to marry the people he's been given a choice of, you know. So he he settles on the circus girl and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But uh, his time in Vienna, I mean, why he goes to Vienna, he must be desperate because, like I said, he is deadly afraid of the Germans. And actually, I think part of his contract was to have bodyguards or something against the Viennese or the Austrian people. So... Um, and then after that, the very next year is, is when the suicide um, murder suicide I call it occurs on Halloween night in nineteen twenty five so
1: yeah, um, well,
3: and then it's
1: interesting he leaves behind uh, his baby daughter, Maud, um, mm-hmm. who winds up uh, becoming the champion of his film career and you know finding and, and getting preserved a lot of the films. I got the sense that your, you know, your idea in the book is to try and get a get a picture of him, that's not exactly Maude's picture of him.
3: So t- yeah, tell me about the purpose of your book. The purpose of my book is to try to get a story that has not been told yet, even by Maude. I mean, Maude was certainly not um, trying to give a Lily White or rose-colored glasses story about her dad. I mean, she had you know, she had really bad feelings about him for many, many years, and she was not um, she was not in any way um, confused about wh- who he was or what he had done. You know, but at the same time, she, as the last living um, progeny of him, she wanted to somehow keep his legacy alive. You know. Um, I wanted to try to get at some of the things, I mean, there's so many rumors about what happened on this day or what happened here, like with the war story, you know, um, I wanted to try to get that story told as truthfully as I could. So I tried to pick sources that I thought were halfway true, at least instead of all, you know, what, what Linder put out was total falsity. You know, there was a battle of Ayn. He wasn't in the battle of Ayn, you know, um, and he 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 wasn't dead. He wasn't he wasn't shot at all. Um, basically, he had this this appendicitis wound that kept opening up. He had um, pneumonia slash tuberculosis, and you know the sleeping um, accommodations were bad for that. I mean, sleeping on the ground and whatever. You know he was just became more sick because of where, what he was doing. And they they finally realized that he he just couldn't even drive cars for them yeah so and what i mean his film about his films and their
1: survival what uh what all do we have of his career
3: well um with uh catherine's filmography you can see i think she has listed about 300 films or so Uh, we have about 125 or so in existence i believe which is a good number considering that um, given how old they are and you know, it's very rare to find this kind of film that's so old, you know what I mean? Right. Um, And a lot of times archives have them, but they don't realize they're Max Linder's films. So for instance, um, a film called um, the effects of the pills was just discovered like a year or two ago when George Rankin, who was a huge uh, Linder fan and had this incredible website, um, found that a particular archive had it. I believe believe it was, um, was it the BFI or something? It was a major major archive. Um, They just had it in their archive, and they didn't know it was a Max Linder film. There it was, and it was in good shape. Um, (laughs) So I think there's more out there that we can find and will be found over the years. And sometimes he's in a very small, small part, and people don't realize that he's in it. You know, so I think there'll be more found over the years. Well, let's talk about the
1: filmography because uh, I mean, I think a lot of people think, oh, filmography—you just make a list—and no, that's a that's a work in itself. Um, yes. A major work of scholarship in like documenting. Well, what did he actually do? Mm-hmm. And probably to some extent, what did he not do? That's been given. Yeah, he's been given credit for all this time. Um, so yeah. Tell me about
3: the filmography in your book. Uh, Catherine Corman is a um, curator of film at the, uh, I, Insti- I, I film Institute in Amsterdam, Netherlands. And she's been compiling this filmography for 30 years. <laughs> so we're talking major life work here. Um, so, as my friend Uli Rudell said about it, it's it's major because it combines all of her work and all of George Rankin's work, which he, he you know, went through all of the um, kind of paper trail that films have through all the industry journals and such to try to find things as well. And um, kind of uh, puts to bed some of the rumors about what he was in and what he wasn't in. So it's it's really um going to be a huge resource for everybody, archivists as well as somebody who just goes to YouTube to look for films, you right. know what I mean? <laughs> so it gives all the different names for them. I mean, every country names it something different. Um the list of films I gave you, I put in English uh, be, just because I thought it might be Uh, easier for most people but um, they came out in French obviously and they also have (laughs) German names and Russian names and you know all that kind of stuff so Right and I mean it's worth pointing out that uh,
1: you know this isn't like 8 pages at the back it's 150 pages and and (laughs) includes (laughs) um, you know significant uh, synopses as much as you can find in a lot of cases for for some of these films The, uh, the important thing with any Star is, you know, knowing what did they actually do. So um, recovering that for someone from that early period where they're not, you know, they're not necessarily tied to studios that have continuity to the present day or any of that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. um, is important work. Um, Yeah, I mean, let's let's talk about people getting to see Linder today. I mean, there's quite a bit of him on YouTube. What would you particularly recommend?
3: that people look for to get us a, a taste of his personality? Um, I, there's a couple of pathways that I think are really good. Um, they don't have my favorite, which is the, um, the duel of doc, uh, Mr. Myope, which means that he's totally myopic and can't uh-huh. see anything. That was that <laughs> hysterical. Uh, I la- that's a laugh out loud one. Um, <laughs> but max, t- max takes a bath is really funny. Because he's trying to take a bath out in the hallway because he discovers he doesn't have any water in his apartment. (laughs) Um, And uh, uh, another really good one is um, troubles of a grass widower. Now, nobody knows what a grass widower is, but it means that his wife has taken off and he must do the housework. So this is a kind of a switching roles kind of a deal. And Max is trying to cook, clean, and do the housework. So that one's pretty funny too. And that's uh, just
1: 1908. So I mean, when we're right. talking about the Pathé period, this is very early, really before major American comedians. And he's already right. a a character comedian in a more modern
3: sense. Right, right. And then I gave you a bunch of uh, of the later ones. The, there's some SNAs in there. The um, <sighs> What is that one? Max wants a divorce is one of my favorites. So in that one, uh, that's the case where, and I think there's like versions of this and everything else where, you know, the, the rich uncle says you've got to marry this person uh, because I'm gonna get, I won't give you my money, I won't put you in my will if you don't marry such and so. But Max happens to be married already, no. <laughs> so he, he has to talk his young wife into a divorce. So that he can get the money <laughs> and then <laughs> try to remarry her later or something. I don't know, but it's hysterical. I love that one. Um, Be My Wife is one of his 1920 uh, 21 movies on the When He Came Back the Second Time. Um, that one's really nice too. And also the seven years bad luck is pretty much everyone's favorite. I think, wouldn't you say, Mike?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and yeah. you know, he he. You make many references in the book to him doing a version of the uh, mirror routine that you know we would associate most with. Uh, I think Duck Soup, the two Marx mm-hmm. brothers looking at each other in a mirror without the glass. And then also uh, I Love Lucy, I think, doing it. And yeah. apparently when he was doing it, it was still a copyrighted act from...
3: That's right. The yeah. Schwartz brothers. Yeah. yeah. So he got so. sued the first time. <laughs> he did it in a a short first, and he got sued that time. So the Schwartz brothers supposedly invented it on, in vaudeville, and they were the ones that... <laughs> <laughs> patent the
1: idea well it's so. really nicely done in in seven years bad luck mm-hmm. um you know not you know if you if you know it mainly from duck soup yeah i mean it's it shows that there's a lot of different things you can do with that basic setup uh as well as the fact that it's the mirror that gets broken that motivates the seven years bad luck
3: so right exactly <laughs> That yeah, that's a good film. So, and there's a bunch more on on YouTube as well. I, I tried to look for ones that looked pretty, um, like good, pretty good prints too, because that makes a huge difference.
1: Sure. So.
3: All right. Well, and what do you? I mean, what do you think people get from rediscovering
1: Linder? Why is that important?
3: Well, I think it's important to realize that um, co- comedy goes back further than just. Uh, Chaplin and Keaton and Lloyd I mean it goes back even further than that and maybe it's not American maybe it's more universal more worldwide than we had thought it was before I mean you'll recognize uh, gags that you've seen you know on television last night and realize that they have spiraled up from the bowels of history (laughs) you know (laughs) and nothing's new under the sun (laughs)
1: Lisa Steinhaven's The Rise and Fall of Max Linder, The First Cinema Celebrity, is out now from Bear Manor Media. Thanks to my guests, Jeff Rapsis, Rodney Sauer, and Dr. Lisa Steinhaven. Theme music is by Kevin MacLeod. Remember to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice and leave us a rating or a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks!